0: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. How do I bring my Christian beliefs to bear in my professional life, not just my personal life? It's the age-old disconnect between who I am in church on Sunday and what that means for converting those values into my workplace on Monday. Well, our special guest today came to the realization that the first step wasn't adjusting his leadership style. It was in allowing God to change him before he could affect real change in the workplace. Preston Poor discovered he needed to find the intersection of his faith and his leadership To effectively model discipleship for others, he found he needed to first be discipled by the Spirit of God. Preston Poor has held executive roles with the Coca-Cola Company and the Hershey Company. These days, he's a director and corporate secretary for Numerica Corporation, an air and missile defence company. His book is called Discipled Leader, Inspiration from a Fortune 500 Executive for Transforming Your Workplace by Pursuing Christ. Preston, a special welcome along to 2020. Thanks, Neil. Great to be here. Preston, I think we will want to talk about Coca-Cola, chocolate and missiles, but let's start. Uh, As I've just mentioned in the introduction, a disconnect between our life at church, and our life at work. This is something no doubt you've grappled with for many, many years.
1: I did. I did personally uh, and had a lot of changes happen since 2005 when the Lord got a hold of me. And uh, I I tell people, Neil, that I surrendered my life to the Lord when I was uh, in eighth grade. Uh, It wasn't until 2005 that I actually surrendered my career to him. And uh, so I came to find out that how I showed up in the workplace and demonstrated that faith, uh, there was a big gap between what I was doing and then how I learned to do that. And that's what this whole journey really, really, truly is about. You know, when you talk about faith in the workplace, the thing that comes to mind is a statistic that I always talk to people about. From the Barna organization,
0: are you familiar with Barna? Have you heard of Barna before? Yes, and uh, George barner a well-known name, and uh, for a lot of listeners, they'll be familiar with uh, his research. Yes, what what are your thoughts here? Awesome. Okay, good. So I'm I'm, I'm glad we're on the uh, same field there. Uh,
1: they did a study in 2018 called Christians at Work, and they did it in conjunction with Abilene Christian University, and they surveyed about 1,500 people. And these were believers that said that their faith mattered to them on some level. And in that study, they found that uh, there were three buckets of people. Uh, The first bucket was what we call integrators. That was about 28 percent. Those were people that were actually living out their faith in the workplace. And they were uh, using their talent, their skills and abilities to make uh, the, the workplace a a better place uh, and do well with that. And they had uh, really fulfilling personal and professional lives. In the middle of that group, I'd say about 35%, they called them onlookers. And those were people that were kind of, uh, have had a little bit of discipleship, uh, exposure to church. Uh, They went to church on Sunday and they kind of got that, but they didn't really have any role models about what it looked like to live out their faith in the workplace. But they were interested if you could show them how, if you, if you provided a role model for that, they, they would maybe be interested in that. And then the 34, 35 percent on the other side of that are what they called compartmentalizers. And that's what you talked about earlier in your intro is the people that, that separate that sacred and the, the spiritual. Uh, that what you are doing on Sunday and how you translate that to Monday through even Saturday, if you will. And so it was interesting through all that. You take the numbers and you and you think about, okay, who's actually living out their faith in the workplace and doing it well? Man, only 28%. So there's a dichotomy. There's a huge, huge divide out there between those that are living their faith out and those that aren't. And uh, it's, it's just a tough thing right now.
0: And it's why it's good to take some time to reflect on the stories of people who have been able to successfully make that manoeuvre, faith in church on Sunday to faith in God in the marketplace. But take us back to 2005 for a moment here, Preston. Where were you on a corporate ladder? Uh, back in 2005? uh, Because some will be saying, uh, you know, if you start down low and you sort of uh, progress up that ladder, maybe it's easier. If you're already at the top of the ladder, people already know you and uh, there's all sorts of values that you've already incorporated into business life. So where were you back in 2005?
1: Well, I I was a compartmentalizer in 2005 and I was climbing the corporate ladder. Uh, moving up. uh, And Neil, I thought uh, early in my career, I thought that if I performed well, if I was a top performer, that that would help me continue climbing through the organization. But there was a tipping point for me, like you mentioned, in 2005. I was a new manager. I'd come in and gotten relocated and had a couple new associates on my team. And uh, over a couple, maybe six months, eight months, those two individuals left the organization. And they pointed directly at me. As a matter of fact, uh, I remember holding a um, performance appraisal with one of them. And I remember sitting at the desk, this was before Zoom, and and we had the conference call going. My manager was about to come into the office. And uh, I got on the line and and said, hey, how are you doing? Looking forward to this today. Thanks for taking time. And all I heard on the other side of the line was, Preston, you're a jerk. I quit. And they hung up. Now let that sink in for your listeners for a minute. That was pretty a uh, sobering moment for me, and uh, it was tough. I I lost two right away, and I thought, you know what, this is not going to help my trajectory. And as a matter of fact, my manager called me into her office, and said, Preston, you're a, you're really good at what you do. You really are. What you what you do, you're really good, but your people skills stink. And if you don't uh, adjust that, correct that, you will not continue uh, going up in our organization. So it's something you're going to have to go figure out. And uh, I went through an executive coaching session with uh, somebody that leaned in with me and helped me see that a lot of the things were me. A lot of the problems were me. And in that, uh, also with the coaching stuff that went on, Neil, uh, I prayed a lot. And I sought God's will. I leaned into his word. Was I doing quiet times and things like that beforehand? Yeah, maybe. Uh, but it was an honest assessment and seeking God and saying, hey, I I have messed all this up. Uh, I surrender my career, my, my my will to you. And if you'll change me and take me, uh, I just want to follow you. And that was the real tipping point for me. When that when that uh, individual, individual said that to me, my manager told me I needed to change. I had the circumstances. It was just really a tough time. And uh, that's when we started the change and, and the trajectory
0: back up. Some people might say, if all of a sudden my Christian values come to light in my workplace, which doesn't always uh, play along with uh, you know, what we think as Christians is ethical and right, uh, that if all of a sudden I introduce my Christian values, somehow or other that will diminish my leadership role. But it raises a very important point here. And let me just ask you to touch on this because you mentioned that your people skills stunk. And I'm (laughs) wondering whether uh, your Christian faith at that time, and we're all on a growth curve, aren't we? But uh, what Christian principles actually do, what our values actually do for our people skills? Because my suspicion is our people skills can be better because of our faith. Any thoughts here? oh e- easily uh
1: you know again i go back to the thought that uh my performance i i, I had it all upside down monday through saturday actually i thought that my performance was going to get me promoted through the ranks at the coca-cola company specifically and it didn't work out that way but you know what uh i fa- it was interesting my wife when i was going through all this she goes preston why can't i don't understand why you can't treat people at work the way you treat us at home i'm just a lo- loving, loving doting father a husband Uh, Committed to my church, but for some reason, it was uh, dog-eat-dog when I got into that competitive environment and thought that I needed to uh, uh, perform and outpace everybody and let everybody go into my wake. And as I realized that I went through this transformation process, Neil. Yes, our faith can play a huge role in the workplace. Uh, If you love your neighbor, it's not about just being nice. Uh, But it's about recognizing people, lifting them up, encouraging them, helping them develop, uh, helping them get promoted versus my own agenda. And so if I I take the focus off myself, which I did eventually, and I put it on other people to help them, then, man, that makes the biggest difference in the workplace.
0: How important is it? Uh, Now, this is a, a tricky one, isn't it? Because when you're the boss... Uh, When you're an executive, you've got a job to do, you're implementing the vision, uh, what directives are coming from a board, and you can't always be nice. And sometimes we equate our Christian values and our Christian leadership with being nice. It's not always about being nice, I'm sure. Uh, What are your thoughts here? Uh, When you're saying, I'm going to implement my Christian values in the workplace, does that mean I'm always smiley Mr. Nice Guy? Uh, or are there some deeper things at work in the way that you are actually caring for people? Yeah. You
1: know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about this today, and I'm glad you asked about it. I've never wanted to be known as nice. Now, that might not be a nice thing to say, if you will, but I always want to be known as good. There's a big difference. Um, I was thinking about an employee that I had uh, that was uh, not performing well, and um, you can outline the uh, things they need to do to get better, to deliver results, but it's in the how you do it, not what you do necessarily. And, and what I mean by that is, is this individual, um, I treated them with all kinds of empathy, and I was good in the process, just, fair, um, and, and seeking to help them. But I wasn't just nice. I think a nice per- person might be polite in that situation and want, not might not want to go into the conflict of uh, uh, in the tough circumstances of trying to figure out something for somebody else. So in my mind, being nice at work, um, I never really wanted to be considered nice. I was hoped that somebody looked that I uh, was good, good to others. They were it was great to be on my team. It was attractional. Uh, and I help people move through the ranks of the organization. So, yeah, nice is not something I think uh, that we need. Another thing I'll tell you real quick at the Coca-Cola company that I realized is in meetings, uh, we were so polite to each other. We were so nice, so nice. But when you get outside the meeting often, that's where all the uh, uh, talk happens, the go, things that go on behind your back. And so I'd rather really have a work environment where you could have honest, open, transparent conversations with, with each other versus the political politeness that happened. I know that happens in organizations all around the world, but that's something I experienced. And again, it goes back to being good, fair, just, um, excellent at what you do, inspirational, moving people toward a vision uh, and executing that. So yeah, nice is uh, <laughs> wasn't one of my favorite
0: words. Good, fair, just, inspirational. I think we could find biblical foundation for all of those and not necessarily being Mr. Nice Guy. In fact, sometimes there's an old expression, isn't there? Nice guys finish last. So uh, we would it be appropriate to say the good guys ought to be finishing first? Uh, what are your thoughts here? Well, maybe maybe so. Uh, I, I Maybe so. And here's why. I tell people
1: all the time, Neil, and there's a lot of conversation around management and empathy and all that, and those soft skills are so, so important. But at the end of the day, we also have to deliver results. I know uh, people that were vice presidents that were nice people uh, that were believed this in employee engagement. But often they couldn't inspire the team to deliver those results. And so if you're not delivering results, um, but you're a nice guy or a gal, uh, you're going to be in a tough, uh, tough spot in corporate uh, in the corporate world. Uh, but if you are. A good person, a good, a good, a good leader, and you're delivering results. You're going to be valuable to that organization and to the team. I tell people all the time this simple phrase that the how matters more than the what. The how matters more than the what, and uh, that people aren't going to remember you for the accomplishments maybe that you had, and those those are important, but they're going to remember how you treated them. And I think that's so, so important in the workplace today. And that's that's how I, I, I think that you can be good, and good uh, people, good leaders, often finish well uh, and do very well for themselves.
0: This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. if you'd like to join in our conversation, a question, a comment, uh, your thoughts on being a leader in a workplace today here in Australia. Uh, perhaps it's not an easy thing to talk about, uh, but 1 800 316 316 if you have a contribution. Preston Poor is our guest. He's grappled with all of this at the top levels of some companies like the Coca Cola Company or the Hershey Company, and these days, Director and Corporate Secretary for Numerica Corporation, which is an air and missile defence company. Preston, take us back into uh, some of your career here. And uh, what it's been like on that journey, because uh, those companies, some of the biggest companies like the Coca-Cola company, one of the big significant companies, uh, Fortune 500 companies, um, take us into some of your history with these companies and how you got to actually be involved in missiles.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, so, yes, two totally different stories there. Uh, you might want to hear about the uh, missile defense piece first. Uh, interestingly enough, Neil, uh, my dad is a Caltech graduate, so in Pasadena, California, and uh, that's where some of the smartest of the smart went to school. He got his PhD in applied mathematics, and he was a professor at Colorado State University. Brilliant man. And uh, and he doesn't like it sometimes the way I tell the story, but ultimately he discovered how to track objects in the sky. And so he can track satellites, his technology can track missiles, uh, can track all kinds of different things. And so, interestingly enough, his technology or the company's technology, Numerica Corporation's technology, sits on the desk of the President of the United States for situational awareness if there is a missile attack and helps them make decisions. So... Uh, Dad started that company years ago. My brother uh, is the president of it. My mom helped start it. Uh, My wife works for him. My sister-in-law is the controller. So it's a family business that we have. And uh, basically what our organization does is they support the missile defense organizations and military here. And then also from an air perspective, we've created a radar uh, that we're commercializing. So uh, very different. How am I involved? Well, I'm a family member, I guess. That was how I got into it. Uh, dad was very generous when he started the company 25, 26 years ago and made me a stockholder. And then uh, as I talk about in my book, Disciple Leader, there was a little bit of uh, angst between my brother and my dad. And they asked me to come in and help intervene in that as a, as a new board member. So I'm the tiebreaker between the three of them, or at least I was back in the day. And, uh, and now I'm still functioning in that board membership role, but uh, very different than being a uh, consumer products company person with the Coca-Cola company and with Hershey uh, against that.
0: So there's the family company, uh, but a lot of your skills are learned outside of the family company. And that's what I guess takes us back to uh, the Coca-Cola company. And uh, and you're talking about consumers, uh, consumer marketing, uh, chocolates and Coca-Cola. We could probably have a big conversation about how all of that works, but uh, But a lot of those skills and the challenges, the journey that you've been on has been learned in the trenches of being in those executive roles with those big companies.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So, you know, I was with Hershey Foods. I sold chocolate uh, for about five and a half years and helped in marketing. I lived in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where the uh, chocolate factory is. Uh, That was fun for my family for a little while. And then Coca-Cola came calling, and I started with them about 21 years ago. And uh, it was 2001, actually, and uh, incredible journey from a career perspective. Uh, I started in a small town called Montgomery, Alabama. It was a little, little town, and uh, they brought me in there. And my role, Neil, was to be the, uh, really the ambassador and the conduit between the company and our bottling partners. If you're familiar with the Coca-Cola system at all, uh, the Coca-Cola company is a different company, and then it has a bunch of bottling partners that are individual businesses. Uh, they have their own P&L. They make their own decisions. They do a wonderful job around the world representing us to customers and in the marketplace. And my, my role was to go in there and to uh, uh, really befriend uh, and not be nice, but to befriend a uh, the, the vice president there and his leadership team to work with them to make sure that the strategies that the Coca-Cola company had and the brands that they were launching uh, we're being implemented in the different marketplaces. So I learned all kinds of uh, uh, marketing, branding, uh, sales, uh, all kinds of different stuff. Uh, but if you can imagine uh, the, the relationship when you have two different companies that are often maybe at odds for, for a good thing, because that 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 positive tension can be good. Uh, my job was to try to work with them to uh, win in the marketplace and, and achieve our, our goals. So to your point. I uh, learned so, so much uh, from interacting with other people, uh, how to build strategic partnerships with them, uh, and, and actually still have some lifelong friends from years ago that I still talk to from those days when we were in the trenches together.
0: Let's talk about how a leader's values permeate entire organizations. Now, if you're on the lower rungs or if you're in middle management, you're being guided by the values of those that come from those who are above you, perhaps on the corporate ladder up to the CEO or uh, there's board values and those sorts of things. How do leaders' values begin to permeate the organization or do you have to wait until you hit those executive level roles uh, before those values can begin to go across all of the different dimensions.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'd love to talk about values, so thanks for bringing this up. I was talking last week, I'm mentoring somebody, and one of the first exercises in this leadership coaching I'm doing with him uh, is for him to identify what his values are. And so he goes through this exercise, and I think it's so important because, Neil, I've talked to more and more people uh, that can't say what their top three to five values might be. And if you don't know what your values are, and then you're sitting in an organization and you think you know what their values are, if there's not shared values there, uh, you may not be in the right place. There may not be the right fit. You may not be inspired by those things. So I really think a lot of times it starts at a younger age for you to understand and discover what your values are first. But then as a leader, and I I tell people all the time, I've got a little acronym for my uh, my, uh, five that I have. It's I have little values. That's L I T L E, and so my first one is love. Second one be integrity. Third is trust. The fourth is leadership, and the last one is excellence. So L I T L E, little, little values, and uh, it, it's very important for me because a couple of reasons as a leader, um, I, I I would see things once I knew what my values were. Uh, I would be able to make decisions in accordance to or provide direction, accordance to my values. And if there was something that didn't agree with my values or there was some type of uh, challenge against that, an incongruency, there'd be some tension in me. And so it was important for me to learn what my values were. But then the neat thing was, like at the Coca-Cola company, uh, they had seven values uh, that that I grew in through the system with. And one of them was leadership. And so I just mentioned to you that one of my values was leadership. One was theirs. They valued that. We valued that together. We had that shared value. And it spoke to my heart, if you will, uh, when they acted on those things. They demonstrated that value at the company. They talked about it. They shared stories about how the value was coming to life. And that inspired me. So uh, to kind of circle back to your question, if I, I think I understood it correctly, a leader, in my mind, you need to first understand your values Before then, you can understand where you might have shared values with your organization. And if you're a leader that's rising through the organization, if you're an emerging leader, so important to figure out what those values are. Don't don't embrace just what somebody else has. Make sure you understand what yours
0: are and then find common ground or shared values with other people. Does that help? It does. And we might move on to uh, what those values, because as you say, uh, little, L-I-T-L-E, you've got love, integrity, trust, leadership and excellence. Some might say uh, those could be secular values as well as Christian values. And uh, the way that they look when they're being Uh, led by the leader, uh, that might be the way that that the real difference comes. And I wonder if we can talk about here, because uh, as you say, you shouldn't get those values just from someone else's values. Oh, I'll make those my values. Somehow or other, they've got to be birthed inside you. And this is I guess, this spiritual dynamic that you talk about be, being discipled by the Holy Spirit. Is this the way those values begin to really take root in your life?
1: No, sure. Uh, love is one of, you know, it's the first value I, I put on there. And so love, to my in my mind, is the uh, final frontier. <laughs> There's all kinds of opportunities for love out there that we haven't even tapped into yet. And what I mean by that, not only, I tell people love is not a feeling, it's an act of the will. And the way you see people and also has to do with motive. And so when I take a look at motive and we go back to this journey we talked about earlier, Neil, about before 2005, my motive was not one of love for other people. Uh, It was one of uh, wanting just to get in my own way, if you will. And in in First Corinthians, uh, I think it's uh, 13, uh, four through eight, you know, it talks about love. And one of those things it says about it: love does not insist on its own way, but Preston insisted on his own way uh, years ago. And then the, when the Lord got a hold of me, it was more about how can I follow You, Lord, in the workplace and help those people around me and point them to You. Yeah. So, so that that's so. And integrity, right? We all need integrity. That's how the whole capitalist system and jobs and everything works. Is you've got to have that integrity. And I understand that that can be considered a secular value, but man, you read through the pre, uh, the Proverbs that talks about integrity uh, and the importance of that and uh, the wisdom that comes through that and in, in acting integrity. So, yeah, those values are all biblical. They can be trans. That's a great thing. I love it because it can be transferred to the secular world. And so if I'm talking about motive or how you treat other people, I might be in the back of my mind talking about love, but when I'm talking about something they can connect with uh, around that and inspiring them and helping to develop them.
0: How difficult is it being a Christian leader in your workplace today? Might be all sorts of issues, and perhaps, Preston, uh, things are changing dramatically, aren't they? Uh, difference in the way that Christians are perceived uh, across society and we're talking to you today from the United States uh, in Australia there's probably some similarities and there might be some differences too but things have been changing haven't they They over this past decade in in particular.
1: Oh certainly uh, potentially like you mentioned uh, or talked about was a little bit about the cancel, <laughs> cancel culture easy for me to say right uh, the way Christians are perceived in the workplace, uh, the way they interact, um, it's, it, things are tougher. It's, you know, I was thinking during the break, uh, Neil, that uh, I've got a friend uh, in a C-suite uh, and interacting with all the, the uh, big leaders in the organization, and he's a believer, uh, but, but he's scared to reveal his faith uh, to that audience, to those folks uh, there in fear Of being uh, let go, demoted, ostracized, uh, those types of things, and uh, had a really heart-to-heart conversation, really trying to understand why he was in such an influential position, but he was scared to, to wear his faith on his sleeve, if you will. He doesn't have to do that necessarily. He doesn't have to start a board meeting with a prayer. He doesn't have to thump people with a Bible as he walks down the hallway or evangelize uh, going up and down an elevator. That's that's not what I'm asking. I was I was uh, challenging him about, but uh, to understand that that
0: fear is there, uh, it, it's real. I think it's real. I guess when you are leading an executive level position in a big company. It could be even a small company, Uh, that's not necessarily your preaching platform, uh, but the values and the life that you project to those who are working with you obviously means a whole lot. So, but yes, this fear of cancel culture, uh, the thought that uh, if I'm loud and proud with my Christian values and wanting to make my business my enterprise or the company that I work for uh, to hold to those sorts of uh, issues around integrity that you were talking to just before the news. There's a need to be salt and light, isn't there? But I guess we're never promised that salt and light will be an easy process, but we're all called to be salt and light as Christian believers.
1: Sure, absolutely we are. Um, You know, I I think the thing that a, a believer, what I experienced in my career is this, is that if you're living out your faith uh, people will see that and the reason I bring up the not starting on uh, a board meeting with a prayer meeting or a prayer and all those those types of examples that I had is this is that I think you've got to earn the right of the people that you're engaging with and inspiring and leading in the organization if you earn the right to have conversations with them or share your values with them the why you're doing certain things uh, that helps it, it, it creates respect I think what people want to see from believers and Christians in the workplace is if you say you are, what are your actions? And they've got to be congruent between the two. If they see you saying or they hear you saying one thing and you're doing another, and I know that's, a, uh, that's an age old action, you know, the uh, video and the audio don't match. That's where then you start to lose this trust. Uh, interestingly, I read a, I've read a book called The Leadership Challenge, one of the best leadership books I've ever, ever read. And they did a study of thousands and thousands of people. And the number one trait they want from leaders is honesty. And if you can be an honest and integrous leader uh, that is open with your people and you earn the right to share potentially your faith with them or you're living out your faith in front of them, that makes the difference in the workplace. It's not that you're wearing a Jesus t-shirt or a Jesus cross pin or something like that. It's actually how you're treating people, uh, because at the end of the day, there's not that many great leaders that are out there uh, that are treating people well. And that's why this is an evergreen topic from a leadership. Uh, you talk about people all the time. I, I ask them and, and uh, about the uh, phrase and employee engagement. Have you have you are you familiar with employee engagement, Neil? I uh,
0: You you could just enlarge on that for listeners.
1: Yeah, uh, employee engagement is simply this. I, I have a working definition that I've used for years. It's the level of discretionary effort that an associate's going to put forth based on their relationship with their manager and or their workplace. So it's the discretionary effort, that that desire to be at work, to show up on time, to work as hard as they possibly can, to be motivated, to be inspired, comes down really to the relationship with their manager. And the easiest way to say that is if you've got a great boss, you're going you're gonna to enjoy your work. Uh, And you do really well, but if you have a bad boss, you're not (laughs) We've all been there. I've been in front of many audiences where I've asked them. Hey, how many of you had a great boss before? And they'll raise their hand and then I'll say how many have had a bad boss? I venture to say everybody raises their hand on that So the question is how do you become and how do you leverage uh, and understand what employee engagement is uh, to make sure to help associates uh, Really give that discretionary effort work to help you be successful.
0: How do you become a good boss and uh, that uh, that employing engagement, a discretionary effort? That's really, really powerful. But let's take that back to a foundation here for a moment because the good boss, bad boss scenario. And if you're a Christian listening to our conversation now and you've got a leadership role and you reckon all of a sudden – hmm, maybe I'm falling into the bad boss category. There's some things not quite right. There's some things amiss. Uh, I'm not really doing the sorts of things that have those principled foundations that say these are the Christian values that will ensure my good success uh, in the long term. Now this, Preston, does this come back to a point where... You recognize that you need to change. You need to come clean on some things. Almost in the Christian sense, is this like a repentance exercise you go through to change some direction? Is this is this where the attitude of heart changes?
1: Oh, sure. I you know I think I mentioned earlier at the top of the hour with you that uh, back in two thousand five when I had my challenge, I went and got with an executive coach. Uh, that helped me understand that it was the, the, the common element and all the problems was Preston and Poor. And that was tough to know. But the other thing that helped me a bunch, Neil, was when I later on in my career, still struggling a little bit about leadership, I had gotten a much bigger team, much bigger responsibility. Uh, we did a 360 evaluation. And that's when everybody sits around the table and I leave, they, they set the stage, I leave the room, HR's in there, they have everybody around and they bring up a bunch of questions, they have flip charts on the wall and evaluating Preston and what's his strengths, what are his weaknesses, uh, what, he, what do we need from him, how he could change, all that. And to go uh, through that process uh, is incredible uh, because it's, it's feedback. And I often laugh. People say feedback is a gift. I laugh because at the Coca-Cola company, often it was used not as a gift, but as something else. Um, but the feedback that I received in that 360 evaluation was eye-opening for me. And I realized that that heart change had to take place. Uh, I found my blind spots. I found and saw my, my strongholds that I had. And it's really one of those things you have to step back and say, okay, wait a second. Why am I here? Why am I? Why do I even want to lead people? Uh, how do I move out of just being a manager into leadership? And then uh, how do I how do I get to a point in my career where I'm considered a good leader? That that uh, we're delivering results, but it's again, it's not the what we're delivering, it's the how, and working with people to do that. So it's kind of around the way bush to tell you that uh, what a big uh, thing that played a big role in my life was that feedback to me, and that awareness, that that raising of that awareness, that self awareness. And actually, in spiritual perspective, going to God and laying before him and just saying, hey, Lord, I'm I'm not good at this. I need your help. I surrender to you. Will you take me and change me? And I know that for me, he did that. And I know for the listeners today that if you surrender, if you surrender yourself to the Lord, he will take you from one degree of glory to another. He will move you from where you are as a leader now to a better leader. And he'll put you in circumstances that will try you and test you uh, like it did for me. But that's where the the strength came, the ability to lead with other people. And it made all the difference.
0: A 360 evaluation, uh, not necessarily a gift, as you say. And I think you were about to say the contrast to that is that sometimes those are used as a weapon. And I wonder, because in some sense here... Uh, If you're climbing a corporate ladder, uh, there is a level of humility necessary to be able to take those good advice tips that come, even if it feels like a weapon being used against you. But you won't know whether those are good evaluation directions unless you actually have this Understanding of what those good values are that you've been working with in your quiet time and before God and through the scriptures and uh, with those friends that gather around you, there's there's a certain level of humility, isn't there? And and I guess when you're in the weaponized evaluation process uh, and you're on the receiving end, uh, I wonder whether you think God can use those moments to actually build into you the sorts of strength of character that you need uh, to pres- to pursue the higher levels of leadership.
1: Oh, sure. Um, you know, a lot of it uh, comes down to uh, what you said is humility, but the opposite of humility is pride. And if I had reacted in the situation, that 360 evaluation and gone into that room and heard their feedback, I could have been upset. Uh, I could have been offended. I could have been resentful. But the mindset, the heart set uh, for me going in there was saying, OK, I, I, I need to learn some things about myself and how I can improve and change and uh, really pursue this vision of, uh, and the values that I have about actually living those out in the workplace. And it was, it was a hugely beneficial for me. It's kind of funny too, Neil, we did a, uh, and speak of, I I won't speak poorly of anybody here, um, but I had one 360 evaluation done and then the team was still going through some tough stuff. We, I worked for one of the Hardest functions at the Coca-Cola company for a while we uh, did all the strategic merchandising so the racks and the point-of-sale material and everything that the company created came out of my office well it didn't come actually out of my office but we designed it um, and they brought uh, uh, there was a second 360 evaluation they asked to do uh, the team uh, about me and that's where it was a little bit weaponized I felt like and uh, not to sound like a victim on this at all so I don't want the listeners to think that at all. Uh, but the, the wonderful thing that came out of that was that, um, the team basically said Preston's not the problem <laughs> through all this stuff and they turned the question back on themselves and they said, what can we do to get better? And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a big, that's a big shift over a couple three years from where we were when I was getting all the feedback to, Hey, uh, let's do another 360 and see if we can pull some other stuff out of Preston. Uh, it reversed the, the, uh, uh page flipped turned over and it was a really cool situation at the end of everything
0: Well, when you talk about uh, going through some tough times, and I know in your book uh, you talk about being in the trenches and learning these things, it's almost like a lesson today in uh, what to expect in preparing to actually climb up through uh, those levels of leadership, whether it's a smaller business you're working for or a big corporation that you might be working for. And uh, the 10-year process that it took to actually write your book Uh, Give us some insight here because uh, books can tend to evolve over a lot of time. Uh, Take us through this journey for a moment and uh, the reason why you felt you needed to write a book about discipled leadership. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So this journey, like you said, was 10 years.
1: Uh, It gets me a little excited to talk about it because it was truly a dream come true. Um, I started actually with Coca-Cola. I was relocated from one city to Atlanta, uh, maybe 15 years ago. And Neil, I had a choice in the hotel room about what to do with my time. And so I chose to go down the path of writing a book. I could have watched TV. I could have done a bunch of other things, but I chose, Hey, how could I write a book that would honor God? I had just gotten out of a discipleship course that I took, uh, in the city that I used to live in. And that inspired me to do that. Um, So I started writing uh, and and doing that. I'd write maybe one, one and a half, two chapters a year. Uh, So it was a long process. Um, The book is chocked full of scripture. And also, I want to make sure that it was theologically sound. And so I did a lot of research, an awful lot of research uh, against that. uh, As you're wanting to disciple people and show how your faith can actually, uh, uh, you can live your faith out in the workplace. And so it was a long process to get all that done. Uh, To do it. Interestingly, uh, as you went through the process of um, publishing it, uh, I had looked at three different routes for publishing. You could go through a uh, self-publishing route. Anybody can do that, right? Uh, Which is is good. If you can write a book, that's the first thing, but to get it published is a whole different ball of wax. Uh, So you can do self-publish. You can do a hybrid publishing piece where you go to somebody, you pay them money, you buy books, and then you sell the books, and uh, they give you distribution through a distributor. Uh, which is, is good for some people. And then the third way is traditional publishing. And so that's where you go to a publisher, they buy the rights, and then they go put it out in distribution and market it. And uh, the the story behind all of this is this, is that uh, I got a little ahead of God. Um, I had an agent, a literary agent here in the United States, and uh, he brought this company after company, publisher after publisher to me. And I, I tell people all the time that I went through, uh, before I got my agent, I had 50 agents. I had 30 I'm sorry, I had 50 agent rejections, rejections. Let that uh, number be known. 50 agent rejections, 30 publisher rejections, three editors on the book. I ended up with two total agents on the book uh, and had two publishing deals. I want to speak to the publishing deal real quick. This might be interesting to your listeners. Uh, I got ahead of God and uh, my agent sent me a note and said, hey, let's go with this hybrid piece. I paid some money to the hybrid publisher uh, and was, I guess, okay with it. Um, I talked to my wife about it. We'd prayed about it and felt like, okay, this is the last resort to get the book published and, and to see the dream come true. On that following Monday, Neil, I got an email. And in the email from my agent said, this throws a monkey wrench in things. And it was a traditional publisher saying that we'd been waiting on to hear from eight months that we didn't think we were going to hear from, that we'd love to publish him. And so that sent me in this little, I guess, a tizzy, if you will. uh, And I had a challenge against all of that. And I had to go back to the hybrid publisher, get out of that contract. I lost some money in it. But then go with the traditional publisher. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. And that was back in 2021 when we did all that. So uh, quite the journey to do that uh, and, and get the book published.
0: And just last year, the Selah Awards, a non-fiction book of the year. Just a few minutes remaining for our conversation, Preston, to touch on some things here very practical for listeners who, you know, perhaps they're moving up the corporate ladder or they've got some sort of leadership in their own business or they're working for someone. The way you actually bring together the thread that actually connects discipleship principles that we're learning in our Christian walk, and sometimes uh, for some, that's like they're they're getting that uh, that opportunity to learn some of those principles on a Sunday. Of course, it needs to be a whole lot more than that, I think, uh, in a discipleship role. But connecting those discipleship principles with your leadership principles for Monday, uh, how do you put it all together? How do they all uh, intermix together? Yeah,
1: thank you. Love that question. So uh, the the book that I wrote basically takes discipleship principles and ties them to a leadership principle and actually shows you how you can apply that in the workplace. Um, Let me give you a quick example here. The first chapter is called Seek, Seek, and the principle in that is, and each one of them start with a as a disciple, then they, the next phrase is as a leader. So you'll hear that. It says, as a disciple, invest time with God. As a leader, seek God when making decisions. Pause here for a minute. Uh, I read something from McKinsey and Company, I think, that said that uh, at least with Fortune 500 companies, employees waste 500,000 days a year. Days. 500,000 days a year making ineffective decisions. It's pretty impressive the amount of days that are wasted on all that. It's a lot of waste. And so why this chapter, I started with chapter, is so important. It does a few things. One is I, I, I introduce the, uh, the person reading that's interested in discipleship and leadership to a discipleship principle around the Bible and that it's inspired and, and it's, it's breathed from God and the Holy Spirit. And then I walk and talk to them and tell them, OK, and, and what the role of the Holy Spirit is in our lives and who he is and part of the Trinity. I talk about that, the paraclete, if you will. And then I say, OK, if the Bible is what it says it is and who God says it is or what God says it is and the Holy Spirit is who he is, um, why aren't we spending more time in the Bible? And so I I invest time in that and helping people understand how to do a daily quiet time. And that's just an appointment with God during the day where you will, you know, you pray, you read the Bible, uh, you can make journal, meditate, memorize scripture. Um, But then I take it a step further. Let's take that to to application now. Most people don't ask God for his thoughts on decisions. It's what I call divine input. (laughs) Most people that I talk to about decision making don't, especially in the corporate world. And uh, so that's one key differentiator. If if the Bible is well, you know the book, and we talk about what it is, and then uh, uh, God breathing it, why don't we spend more time in it? Here's a quiet time, and in that quiet time, you're praying to God. He can give you divine input into your decision. Then I say, okay, wait a second. You have a brain as well. And so I put together a framework for people to go through and make a decision. And it's called the what I call the deb day framework. It's D B D A E. And it starts with D. The first D is you have to uh, define what your decision is going to be. Define it, write it out. Number two, brainstorm. Brainstorm different scenarios, different options, and things you need to decide on. Number three, then you want to go in and actually make the decision. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's a step, is you actually make the decision after you've done the brainstorming to find it. Next is action. That's the A. Peter Drucker once said that uh, no action, or I'm sorry, no decision is actually ever made until it's put into action. And so that's the fourth step. And the last step is, is examine, E. And I found that more people in the corporate world make all these decisions, but they rarely go back and evaluate their decision. Uh, I think it was Socrates that said that the unexamined life is not worth living. I have a little play on that. And I say the unexamined decision is, is not worth making. And so if you'll take time to go back and look at the results from your decision. And also key, key note here too, Neil, is that just because you go through this process doesn't mean your decisions are going to be 100% uh, and, and have great results and where you're headed. But what it does, is it says that, hey, I'm leaning into the Lord. I'm looking for him as my source of my wisdom, discernment. Understanding knowledge in this, what is his perspective, and then coupling that with the brain he's given me to evaluate the decision and make the decision. So that's taking a discipleship principle, if you will, and then pulling the needle through into a leadership application principle uh, that you can use in the workplace. And if you can simply improve your decision making skills, you will get off the pile of work. And if you're an emerging leader, that's how you can separate yourself very easily very easily in the workforce.
0: No doubt there'll be some who will want to get a hold of your book, Preston. Uh, it's called Discipled Leader, inspiration from a Fortune 500 executive for transforming your workplace by pursuing Christ. Now here's a connecting point, PrestonPore.com. Uh, Preston is a speaker, a trainer, a coach He's a Certified Maxwell Leadership Team Keynote Speaker. He's a facilitator, a trainer, executive coach, and helping people to become the best version of themselves. You can connect with Preston Poor at PrestonPoor, that's, P-O-O, that's P-O-O-R-E, PrestonPoor.com, and uh, keep an eye out for that book, Discipled Leader. Preston, Thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today and uh, putting us all on a, a new trajectory as we approach the way we actually conduct ourselves as salt and light in our workplaces. And as we pursue levels of leadership in the businesses that we work for, thank you so much for taking some time. And I know you've stayed up a little later today talking to us live from the U.S. Appreciate you being with us on 2020.
1: Oh, it's been an honor. My pleasure. Thank you.